Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. My name is Jeff Krasno. Okay, so today's episode is an excerpt from Dr. Zach Bush's lecture series on Commune titled Vital Health. In Vital Health, Dr. Zach examines the building blocks of human biology and how we arrived at our current misconceptions around nutrition, disease, and what it means to live well. Now, I'll say for myself that working with Zach on this course gave me a completely new perspective on nutrients that we have either villainized or overconsumed, including cholesterol, salt, fat, carbs, and protein, as well as a better understanding of the complex relationship between human health and soil health. If after listening to this excerpt, you're interested in exploring the additional nine hours of lessons like this in Vital Health, then just go to onecommune.com trial. There you can sign up for 14 days of free all access to Commune's entire course library, including more than 100 courses on health, personal growth, and social impact. In addition to Zach's course, Commune offers functional medicine-based programs with teachers like Dr. Mark Hyman on topics such as gut health, sleep, hormone balancing, Ayurveda, and nutrition. Just go to onecommune.com slash trial. Greetings, I'm Dr. Zach Bush and excited to be with you at The Tipping Point. We come together at a very fascinating time in human history that dates back some 200,000 years of Homo sapiens sapiens as we've come to call ourselves, the, the wise, wise ones. And the behavior of humanity really challenges the logic of calling ourselves wise, wise. As we look back over that 200,000 years to see a pattern of behavior emerge early on in our history that was so destructive and ultimately extraordinarily consumptive of the earth and the nature that we were born within. And ironically, as we have revolutionized science with ever faster acceleration in this, in this last century, we find this situation where we are screaming away from nature. We are putting up barriers and boundaries away from the very natural fabric that we were born within. And for that, we are creating our own demise. How can we start to reconnect at fundamental levels of human biology to foster not just health, but some sort of thrive state that we've never experienced before? In human biology, we can look at some fundamental markers for survival. One, of course, is constantly in the news in some shape or form, and it's, it's the relationship of acute and chronic disease burdens to the human population. And so certainly the amount of diabetes and obesity and hypertension and, and cancers and all of this are rising at unexpected rates in these last couple of decades, and it's starting to capture more and more attention as it cripples an American economy. We now spend $3.8 trillion a year as a nation in managing our chronic disease burden. And not one of those dollars goes to pr produce health. It's managing the disease. It's reducing the rate at which it progresses. It's trying to diminish the short-term consequences of those diseases, but it is not a solution. 
And so where we now pour our energy and resources is to damage control. It's throwing the band-aid on a gushing wound of human life. At this tipping point of all things, there's one most important thing is that we become aware. We wake up to where we are right now. Few topics can create the rancor that the topic of food and nutrition does in, in American society. We draw our lines, our battle lines between the vegans and the paleo folks and the keto folks and the South Beach dieters and what have you. And we go through fads of, of patterns here. And in that, we accidentally demonize and alienate ourselves from critical nutrients in the diet. These include salt, includes carbohydrates and sugars, includes the overconsumption of protein. These dogmatic perspectives of these macronutrients have so limited our capacity to live our highest vibration. And so we're going to take a look through this, not out of an effort to judge our past or judge those who have come before us to, to form these dogmas in our lives, but to shake us free of this box, to shake us out of the current processed paradigm, the matrix that we are stuck in, to find a new relationship with nature on our plates. In this century of, of the past, as we've developed a lot of misperceptions about nutrition science, few things have remained unscathed. We have at different times damned carbohydrates and sugars. We've certainly damned fats for decades. We've damned the cholesterol and the salt and all the rest, but protein has somehow remained above the fray. And I like to track this back to World War II with an interesting phenomenon of advertising in the human brain that has really shaped the, the American diet as we know it today and has created deep ruts in our understanding and dogma around this macronutrient that we know as protein. The human diet preceding World War II was really out of the backyard garden. We had not developed macro agriculture at the scale that we know it today in those 1920s and 30s. It was small farms, family farms, usually multi-generational, often dating back to the very settlers that you know came across in the conquest of this country and settled farms throughout the, the northern parts of the United States all the way down of course to the Midwest ultimately and then eventually out into California. And that agricultural system was based on farms that were typically in the five to 50 acre range. And these farms remained a relatively small minority of the food that we were consuming. Even leading up to the Dust Bowl that hit in the 1930s that would lead to widespread famine throughout the United States, we were looking at a primarily kind of peasant farm kind of environment that you would find anywhere else in the world today. And then we started to develop some mechanized techniques for accelerating the capacity for large-scale farming. And they included certainly the improvements in plows and combines and some of the harvest materials and infrastructure but also in the processing. We, we developed steel grinding of oats in the late 1800s, for example, getting away from the stone grinding that had been done for thousands of years. And so there's, uh, there's this kind of generative change in technology and innovation over the course of the, the last 100 years that have really created something that's never existed in human history. We could have never conceived of the feedlots of modern agriculture as short as, as 50 years ago. We have generated these massive protein industry production systems that crowd animals into 
packed pork houses or chicken houses and, and crowded feedlots with 100,000 cattle uh, managed by just 12 cowboys. It's, it's an unbelievable amount of efficiency that's been put into this protein system so that we would eat more and more of this macronutrient over the last 100 years. The perception of the kind of superhero qualities of protein came out of World War II, again, in the advertising industry. There was a U.S. military advertising campaign that launched midway through the war that was pushing families to send their chickens to the troops. And so this new subtle message that chickens were somehow a superfood that were going to empower our troops to overcome you know, the Nazi regime was the propaganda that was kind of placed in the subconscious in these advertising campaigns around the send the chickens uh, to the troops uh, advertising. And this was a major shift for the, the American mind because previous to World War II, chickens were egg producers. They were in the backyard of nearly every home. Uh, we were growing by the end of World War II, 45% of our, our food system in backyard gardens, not even the, the small scale you know, family run farms that we had talked about earlier. And so we had become very self-sufficient by the end of World War II, but the, the chickens that we had were primarily egg producers. And if there was a chicken that was gonna be butchered, we, we got this subconscious idea that somehow that was a superior form of caloric intake and we were gonna save that superfood for the troops. The interesting phenomenon that then hit uh, as soon as World War II finished was that the consumption of chicken in, in America went exponential. And so suddenly over the next decade, chicken would become a staple in lunches and dinners and the rest on a daily basis. Previous to World War II, our diet primarily was chickens on Sundays. It was that you know, special Sunday dinner when things were going well. When we were lacking money, we had very little chicken to share across the family table, and we were relying on cheaper food production, primarily pork products and the like, and processed meats became a real phenomenon during the same period of time. And so this was the shift that started happening in the mentality of Americans, where it wasn't what the garden was producing was the optimal food, but there was this idea that protein at the top of that new food pyramid that was starting to be put together by the USDA and the like, always with that meat and dairy at the top of the pyramid, suggesting that this is somehow the, the highest you know, purpose of the entire food system is to get to this meat and dairy protein density phenomenon. And so this started to shape the diet of Americans throughout the 60s, 70s. And of course, by the time we hit the 80s and 90s, we were starting to hit the food fear phenomenons where you're fearing the carbohydrates and you're fearing the fats. And we had the whole explosion of low-fat diets in the 1980s. We had the explosion of you know the diet drinks, the zero sugar phenomena, all of this pushing forward in the 1980s and 90s. And so we really went through this journey away from the understanding that abundance and, and, and a macro diversity within the diet was critical to the idea where we could really monotonize the human experience at the top of that food pyramid to create health. Certainly this got grabbed by bodybuilders and, and the athletes and everything else thinking proteins were king. But even the athletes had quickly found out that protein was not the promised land when it came to performance. And this is why carbohydrate loading the night before races has remained the phenomenon throughout the whole protein phenomenon of the belief that muscle equals protein intake. Carbohydrate loading was allowing athletes to perform at a high level on the day of the race, and if they instead ate that steak the night before, performance was clearly diminished. 
And so especially in your long distance runners and, and your more aerobic exercises, it was pretty clear that protein somehow was not winning the game on game day. Nonetheless, it's been very difficult, I think, for the American consumer to start to put down their beliefs around protein. And unfortunately, if I look across the entire macronutrient, micronutrient realm of, of nutrition today, I believe that the most damaging macronutrient that we consume is the American protein diet. The proteins that we tend to eat as Americans are dense and they are monotonous, meaning that there's very little variety of the amino acid building blocks within that protein. The way in which protein digests through the human digestive system is very slow. And so when we get meat proteins and dairy proteins that are highly dense and monotonous amino acids, we have a hard time breaking those down in the small intestine. So this, the intestinal tract has to move slowly. And ultimately we end up with a large amount of undigested foods in the colon, which leads to an intense fermentation demand at the back end of that digestive process. At the University of Virginia in 2002, a study was done that was evaluating the speed at which food moved through the digestive tract of young, healthy Americans. And so we picked university students, ages 18 to 21, and those students with no history of any chronic disease or disorder were given a, a standardized caloric intake of about 800 calorie meal consisting of pizza. And so there was meat and there was dairy and there was the carbs. It was the full kind of American diet experience, but heavy on the, on the protein side with all of the cheese and meats. Tracking that meal through the digestive tract of those young healthy kids, we got to see a, a transit time from stomach entry to the end of the colon of about 14 hours. Amazingly, bringing those same students back a week later and giving them a calorically matched plant-based meal where there was no dairy and meat, the transit time was only 90 minutes from stomach to colon. And so the, the implications are pretty profound when you just think about your daily quality of life. If you eat a high protein load with that chicken salad at lunch, 14 hours later, you're still digesting that protein load, trying to get it through to the colon. Meanwhile, you've eaten another large protein load at dinner, and that consumption is gonna take until you know, after breakfast the next day before that gets through. And so you can start to imagine the small intestine getting backed up with these slow digestive patterns of, of protein digestion that end up clogging up the colon with this fermentation process. And so that's the journey that has started to take shape as we consider the protein density in foods. But before I tease that any further, I wanna back up for a moment and help us understand what are proteins? Why are they critical to the body and where do they come from in the human body? We have the sense obviously that protein is, comes from meat and protein comes from the muscle of other animals. And so whenever you start to transition yourself to a vegetarian or vegan diet, the far and away the most common question that you're gonna get is, well, where are you gonna get your protein? Which is very ironic when you, you look at the rest of the animal kingdom and where they, they get protein from. But nonetheless, we've gotten stuck in this belief that we have to chop up other bodies of animals to pull all that meat out of their bodies to get protein. So you got chicken, you got beef, you got pork, and you got fish. And that's kind of how every menu that you go to in any restaurant kind of breaks things down as to the, here's your protein sources. What kind of meal do you want? And so when you start to transition vegetarian, the first kind of hang up is, 
how do I even put a meal together without the meat at the center point? Hard to imagine that meal without that, that focal point that has been placed so firmly in the American mindset. Nonetheless, as we go through the understanding of protein, we find out that the meat that we are thinking of, that muscle that's been chopped out of the animal, is a very small amount of the total amount of biodiversity within the protein world of that animal. In the same way, the human body is, is just a vast ecosystem of proteins. We are just starting to untangle the sheer complexity of what's called proteomics, or the, the universe of the proteome all of these proteins that make up the human body. It is far more eloquent than you could ever imagine what we have now dumbed down on menus to these four basic protein types is such a gross underestimate of the extraordinary beauty of this proteome. This universe of proteins that you can imagine in, in a fetus developing in, in the womb of a woman is a good example. Here's a developing human body that's going to build bone and teeth and nerves and brain and muscle and the entire organ system with liver and thyroid and adrenal glands and kidneys. This beautiful array of subspecialization of cells is really dictated by the dance of proteins as they are dictated by your genes. And so the formation of a body is a symphony of protein synthesis. And it is vast. It is not four sources of protein that are, are there. It is 400,000 different proteins that are made in the human body. 400,000 different proteins produced in the human body is very mind-boggling when you look at the, at the source from which it comes. The amino acids are the building blocks for proteins, and there's only 22 of them. And so imagine now perhaps the English alphabet. You've got 24 letters that can make hundreds of thousands of words depending on their organization. This is very much how the proteins are built within your body. To get to that vast array of some 400,000 different proteins, you're gonna spell different versions of the 22 letters of the amino acids to build those proteins. Interestingly, there's eight of those amino acids that are essential in our diet. The rest of them we actually produce directly in every single cell in the human body. And so our bodies are very good at producing the array of amino acids we need, and they're very good at extracting amino acid diversity out of the foods we consume. The essential amino acids are entirely coming from the bacteria and fungi within your gut and in the soil systems in which our food is produced and ultimately delivered through our plants. And so those essential amino acids cannot come from the meat proteins at all. The only way a meat product is going to end up with an essential amino acid is from their gut from the microbes within that, the intestines of that animal. And so ultimately we have this misperception that protein is somehow the delivery source for amino acids that will go on to make the body. So where do proteins come from if not from the meat we consume? And the answer is pretty bizarre. The answer is sugar. The glucose that comes from our complex carbohydrates in a, in a healthy diet are the, the source for amino acid production throughout the body. For some of you who recall vaguely with a little bit of PTSD, those biology classes in high school, you'll recall maybe the citric acid cycle. And through that citric acid cycle, we take glucose and turn it into the array of amino acids that our body demands to make this vast ecosystem of 400,000 proteins. And so we take sugar and we turn it into the building blocks for life through this citric acid cycle. I want to just kind of back up now to think about the eloquence of this design. Of these 400,000 proteins that we've begun to untangle, 
we only understand the role of very few of them. And, and those roles tend to clump into two general categories. Those of structural proteins, things like the structure of a muscle cell, if you can imagine that, or the structure of the extracellular matrix that kind of holds the scaffolding together to determine the shape of a liver or a kidney, the trafficking of nutrients and, and water flow between those cells. Those structural proteins are, are a huge piece of the, the complex ecosystem of this protein synthesis. The other category, the enzymes, are the workhorses of the body. These are the ones that take the zinc out of your food and, and create complex protein structures to do mechanistic work in the machinery and, and factories of the endoplasmic reticulum that we've mentioned. These big parts of the cell that do uh, assembly and manufacturing of important macromolecules and such that would build, build a cell wall or build the nucleus or construct the proteins that would then carry DNA to and fro throughout the body. And so that, that whole work system is kind of that enzyme category of the protein world. But I love to imagine just how complex this ecosystem must be as we get into these tiny little proteins that don't become those giant enzyme factory units, but are actually signaling molecules. And we call these often uh, cytokines or other uh, names that we've pegged on them, but the, the function is one of communication. And so we have perhaps these three new categories starting to emerge, the structural proteins, the, the workhorses or the enzymes, and then ultimately these communication mechanisms of, of the cytokines and these other small protein peptides that are produced throughout the body. These three categories then go on to do this dance of life, which is all day, every day regenerative and building a different body each day. So how does glucose know which of these amino acids to turn into at any moment? And then once we have the building blocks, the 22 Legos on the table, how do we know what to go and build? And that, of course, was by the 1950s and 60s understood to be likely dictated by our DNA. And so we had this belief that the DNA within the nucleus of our cells inherited from mother and father were there to dictate the outcome of what body we would build. And then we imagined these bodies being this kind of you know, machine that was set in motion when we were born and it grows up and it ages, but it never really transforms its identity. It's always set based on this rigid template of the genome that we inherited from mom and dad. But that whole system of belief started to break down in the 1990s when we started to be able to decode the entire human genome. We had already gotten a glimpse that we were, we were probably well over 200,000 different proteins in the body by the time we were in the early 1990s. And so knowing that each protein had a template within the DNA, we assumed that there must be over 200,000 different genes within the human genome. Further supporting this belief was that we had successfully decoded the, the genome of the fruit fly initially, which was 13,000 genes. And we had decoded the flea, which had 30,000 genes. And so with these tiny little insects having this many genes, we assumed, well, this, you know, if we, by the time we get to a pig or a human, we must be up in these hundreds of thousands of different genes. But ironically, we found the opposite. By 1996, the first team decoding the human genome came out with an extraordinary announcement that they thought that the human genome only consisted of 26,000 genes. That put us somewhere between a flea and a fruit fly in our genetic diversity. This was not only disappointing from just the hubris mindset of the human that thought it was the penultimate genomic you know, manifestation of biology on Earth, it was really disappointing because it meant we had failed to understand the role of DNA 
and its translation into proteins. We suddenly were in a, back in a black box experience that we had been back in the 1930s and 40s when we didn't understand at all. Where was all this information? Where was the planned blueprint for biology? How did a bean in a, in a pea know how to turn into that seed? How did the human body in, as a fetus know how to make all these different organ systems? How, how did uh, you know, 200,000 proteins know how to, to manifest themselves? The Watson and Crick moment of the DNA, we thought we had, had broken into the black box. Here's the template of life. Here's how it goes. That was some heady times. As soon as we found out that 20,000 genes could make 200,000 proteins, we knew we had not solved for the black box of how life knows how to create itself. We still did not understand where we came from. Over the course of the last 30 years, we've seen an extraordinary explosion of data around something called epigenetics. The birth of epigenetics was necessitated by this understanding that 20,000 genes could somehow turn into 200 or 400,000 proteins. What it meant was that somehow a single gene, a single template for a protein, could somehow change its mind as to what it was going to make. Imagine a blueprint of a house that could make 20 different houses. We could not figure out how this happened in the nucleotide sequences of DNA. And so we had to start to explore the control of and manipulation of DNA by our environment. And that, in a nutshell, is epigenetics. Epigenetics is this extraordinary story that human life, as we understand it, is the result of complex communication networks that happened between the bacteria and fungi in our gut, on our skin, within our organ systems, complex communication from the air that we breathe and the pollens and the, the nutrients in the air, the bacteria and viruses in the air that we breathe, all of this in, is in constant communication back to our genome. And so this ecosystem, this literal cacophony of feedback that we receive from the environmental experience of being alive every day is shaping who we become tomorrow. Every gene can decide to make 20, 30, 40 different proteins at, every, at any given moment. And it's gonna depend on the feedback from your environment as to which body you build tomorrow. This is extremely good news if you are not feeling well today. If you feel like the aging process is catching up with you too fast or you, you've been diagnosed with some disorder or disease that's undermining your quality of life, there tends to be this belief in Western medicine at large and in the consumer mind that we are, this is somehow a life sentence as to who we are now. We are now define ourselves by the disease. And this sneaks into our language, right? We, we're suddenly diagnosed with diabetes and then we call ourselves a diabetic. This kind of assumption of identity to our disease is not fitting into the current science as we understand biology today. You can literally build yourself a different body next week if you change the environmental input to your genome. And so this is the steps that I take in clinic with every single patient. They will typically come in after years of bouncing between doctors and surgeries and all types of different invasive uh, procedures and, and reams of drugs and everything else and CT scans and MRIs and thousands of pages of lab tests and they'll come in with this huge thing and set it down on my desk and expect me to start paging through all of this information. And it's become some, with quite some joy that as a physician I get to do my highest work when I gently push all of that aside, look the patient in the eye and say, who are you today? And start there. 
and have them tell me who they think they are today and listen to the language that they use. Am I a cancer patient? Am I a diabetic? Am I you know, hypertensive? If you're defining yourselves by your diseases, then we need to start there. We need to start with the understanding that your plastic genome can go on to build a completely different body through a different dance of the 400,000 proteins that you could make today. And so this is the, the excitement that I have around our new understanding of human biology is it is not fixed. You did not inherit your life journey from your parents. The genes that you were given may have given you vulnerabilities or strengths that your siblings or your friends down the, the dorm hall might not have, but nonetheless your environment can be chosen such that your vulnerabilities are not exploited and your strengths are exploited. And so we've got this opportunity to work to our own strengths in our own biology to build the body that we would like to have. So stepping back to the nutritional dogma that we live in, how is it that we got proteins stuck in our head as this important macronutrient? It is ironic because even in your basic understanding is food is fuel, protein is not one of them. Our cells cannot take protein and turn it into energy. Our cells, if you're going to consume a protein, have to break that down into sugar. And so if you eat anything more than 8 or 10 grams of protein a day, the recommended daily allowance for protein in the American diet from the USDA, typically around 40 grams, uh, males a little bit more, or females just a touch less, but around 40 grams a day being that recommended da daily dose, some 30 grams of that or more are going to be converted straight to glucose by the liver or other cells within your body so they can be utilized as fuel. But the protein cannot be directly burned. So protein, protein is not a fuel. It's perhaps a reserve, a caloric reserve, but it has to then be transformed into glucose. And unfortunately, when you think about protein as a source of, of fuel in the form of glucose, there's a lot of detrimental side effects that happen in that digestive metabolic process. We call this process catabolism. You've become familiar with the concept of metabolism in your body, the speed at which you take nutrients and, and fuel and turn them into uh, active energy within your body. Catabolism is the opposite. It's, it's taking protein and breaking it back down into a fuel source. Protein is, is the end result of biologic processes. It's the building of things. But before you can ever go build something with the meat on your plate, you're going to have to break that down into its constituents. Remember that all of the amino acids that we produce in our body that will go on to make those 400,000 proteins are made from glucose. They're made from sugar. And so we're going to take all of the protein coming in. Certainly you don't need the exact protein matrix of the beef that you just consumed. That's a very monotonous and small you know, number of amino acids there. There's only you know, three, four, five different dominant amino acids in a piece of fish or a piece of meat, whatever it is. That is not what your body needs today. Your body needs some you know, exquisite dance of 400,000 different proteins that are going to be constructed of those amino acids differently. So to get there, you're going to have to break down those amino acids and to get the full fluidity of potential for protein synthesis, you need it all the way back down to sugar. So that process of taking things that have been previously built in the meat of a chicken or a cow, breaking that back down to an essential building block for you is, is the production of glucose. So this catabolic process, as mentioned before, 
creates some side products. There's this inevitable production of waste products, if you will, alongside of that transition to glucose. And one of those major byproducts is urea. Urea is a breakdown product of nitrogen as the protein is, is digested down to the carbohydrate glucose. Carbohydrates and fats are all carbon-based long-chain molecules. In contrast, the proteins have a, a large amount of nitrogen that have to be released that won't ever be integrated into a glucose or a fatty acid molecule. And so all that nitrogen is typically dumped into urea and urea being produced in every single cell of the body and in high doses when you're breaking down protein in the digestive tract will go on to produce this, this noxious inflammatory waste product that has to be cleared by kidney tubules. The amount of inflammation that it induces on the way is going to be determined by the amount of reservoirs of antioxidants and other anti-inflammatory compounds that you would have circulating at the same time. If you start to eat an excess of protein where you're getting into you know, far beyond the, the 20 grams a day that your body might want, you're going to start to really increase the likelihood of vascular inflammation as the urea is cleared from cells and trafficked then ultimately uh, to the kidneys for clearance. So that's protein excess at the cellular level. In the digestive tract, before it's ever absorbed, we can have another inflammatory injury. And that's around this process of protein fermentation in the colon. The idea of fermentation in the colon may sound relatively benign, but the word that we utilize in science for this is putrefaction. And somehow that word really, I think, captures just how noxious this process is. Putrefaction is the process of fermentation by bacteria of undigested proteins that have reached the colon. That putrefaction leads to the production of fatty acids, ammonia, and hydrogen sulfide, a potent acid. And that, those compounds released in the colon are a noxious injury to the wall of the, the, the colon for sure, but perhaps even more so or of more consequence to the immune system that lies just deep to that colon lining. And so this acidic, toxic production of ammonia and hydrogen sulfide, which are the kind of the compounds that you'll see with the hazmat signs on those tank trucks that are running to farms around the country to dump ammonia uh, fertilizers and stuff like that into uh, soil systems, they have to have those warnings on them because they are so caustic. They, they tear up anything that they touch. And, and the process there is one of oxidation or tearing of electrons off of any surface that these things like ammonia and hydrogen sulfide will touch. And so imagine this acidic kind of bath coming out of this putrefaction process in the colon. This is, the, this is what's happening in the majority of the American guts. The American consumer is eating somewhere around 170% too much protein. So rather than the 20 to 40 grams a day, most of us are eating somewhere in the 80 to 120 grams a day. And again, we're eating it multiple times a day, which means that our intestines with that slow 14-hour movement of dense proteins across them are starting to back up. They're, they're clogged up with all this excess protein. The consequences of this putrefaction and this kind of acidic bath in, in the colon is a couple that you've probably heard of. One is leaky gut. Leaky gut has kind of become a, a prevalent understanding in the industry of, of food nutrition as being kind of the underpinnings of autoimmune disease and chronic inflammation. And certainly food sensitivities like the autoimmune disease of celiac or the, the wheat sensitivities and such are a good example of this. 
And what's happening is you acidify that, that colon wall, you're damaging the proteins that are the, the Velcro that hold that vast array of epithelial cells that would, would conform to make a barrier between your food and the bacteria there uh, and your bloodstream or the immune system between is these, these Velcro-like proteins. And, and so as they are damaged by the, the hydrogen sulfide and the like, you start to get leak across that gut. We see this in profound ways in feedlots. I'm working extensively with a number of feedlots around North America trying to reduce the stress of animals because of their microbial deficiencies and, and this slow movement of materials across their gut and their extreme amounts of herbicides that are in their genetically modified food chain. These animals have so much leaky gut at, at the end of the day that the, their primary cause of death is pneumonia. Bacteria setting up infection in the lungs, they're dying of respiratory infection but the pathogens that we find in the lung of those cows as they're dying are actually colon microbes that, that passaged from the, through this very leaky gut that they've got at the end of the day in their bloodstream, passaging through their bloodstream, ultimately finding an aerobic source of oxygen within the lung and setting up shop there. So it's a disgusting you know, example of just how much damage is done when we start to develop these distal colon or distal bowel leaky guts. We're passaging bacteria and toxins and all kinds of things into the bloodstream that should have never been there had we the, the well-formed barrier systems of the gut wall. And so this overdose of protein in the American diet is not only predisposing us to inflammation, it's predisposing us to intolerance to our food systems at large. So as we become sensitive to all varieties of food, not just peanut allergies as I grew up with in my school, I knew one kid who had a peanut allergy, now, if you go to the nurse's you know, station in a typical elementary school, she's got a ton of EpiPens on the wall now with kids' names and their weird allergies. You've got kids that are anaphylactic to avocados and eggs and, and your, your tree nuts, and it just goes on and on, the sensitivities that children are now prone to. What's happening as we overload these children with dense proteins of dairy and meat, especially the processed you know, cheeses and processed meats, we end up with these highly toxic distal colons and they are destroying their relationship to their food as their immune system is exposed to all kinds of elements within their food chain that should have been protected from that immune response. And so this is the journey into a protein overdose that we've experienced in America over the last few years. Once inside those cells, once we've absorbed the protein successfully, and we start to try to utilize that protein as a breakdown source of glucose and we produce that urea, you can start to see the consequences of overload there. So urea, as it courses from a single cell and traffics through the bloodstream to the kidneys some you know, many meters away, are, is going to experience multiple levels of toxicity. The beginning of it is that the blood vessels, we've spent a lot of time in this program talking about cardiovascular disease, and you remember that initial inflammation that calls in the LDL you know, soldiers to help reduce the inflammation, and then if we fail to clean that up due to an overload of injury, we might end up with plaques of cholesterol and a heart attack. But it wasn't the LDL cholesterol caused it, it was that initial you know, injury from the cell wall, and a great source of that is urea from a protein excess in the diet. So protein excess leading to direct metabolic injury is a common phenomenon. As the urea continues to circulate through the body, it can cause damage in other tissues. The kidneys can end up with a scarring process that we call fibrosis due to excess urea. 
And so the scarring of the kidney tubule leads to a failure to exchange water and other waste products across those kidney tubules to produce effective urine, which is a clearance, metabolic clearance process for the metabolites and breakdown processes within our body. So if we see excess protein in the diet, we can expect a high degree of kidney disease in the population. Chronic kidney disease is now the most common chronic disease in the world. We, ha we have an extraordinary burden of this as we've transitioned the whole world, including the developing world, into this belief of this need for high-density protein to avoid starvation. Again, World War II was a big tipping point for this belief. We had set up a lot of military bases and activities in the Philippines during the World War II, and so American soldiers got to witness a lot of widespread starvation and hunger in children in the Philippines. So when the war wrapped up, there was a big humanitarian effort to go and feed the children of the Philippines. And instead of stepping back to say, what have humans eaten through all human history, and what do other you know, mammals eat to get optimal health, we adopted this superfood protein chicken belief kind of thing that we had developed with the Feeding the Troops campaigns and applied those now to children in the Philippines. And we started uh, importing an enormous amount of meat, proteins, and dairy to these children. Colin Campbell, perhaps known to you through all of his nutrition science, he was for many decades the, the head of nutrition sciences at Cornell University, was a young investigator who was part of that initial team going over to the Philippines to study those children. One of the things the investigators discovered on their return was an unexpected amount of liver cancer in these children. Starvation had certainly been eradicated. There was certainly a caloric excess available to these kids now through the feeding program, but never before had these Filipino children expressed a significant amount or measurable amount of liver cancer as a public health threat. These kids now expressing liver cancer was a real dilemma for the investigators because it was pretty clear that the kids that had not been part of the feeding program were not expressing the same amount of liver cancer. And so there was some theories that perhaps it was waste products from munitions of World War II or chemical warfare, or whatever it could have been that these kids had been exposed to. It wasn't playing out in the comparison groups or the cohorts that hadn't been fed the American diet. Colin Campbell was one of the few investigators that came back to the United States with this idea stuck in his head that protein could cause cancer. And he was one of the first investigators to really start to tease out all of these organ system damages that can happen with excess amounts of urea production. In the last decade, you know, speeding up another 40 years later, we have discovered new mechanisms by which protein can become toxic to human cells. And interestingly, one of these is through direct work of the microbes that break down proteins directly into a, a multitude of small molecules. There's a certain species of bacteria prevalent in the, the human small intestines that when seeing high densities of meat proteins, in particular L-carnitine, which is prevalent in things like fish, uh, salmon being a good example, or beef being a good example, the L-carnitine from these dense proteins, once digested by these, these bacterial uh, species within the small intestine, is converted to an array of compounds, including one that's called TMAO. This acronym describes a large molecule that is just now understood to be one of the most potent toxins to vascular and liver cells and the like. And so imagine these Filipino children, deficient of calories, starving, needing food, suddenly being given these high-density proteins that they've never seen generationally uh, in that, in that uh, people group. And so suddenly they, they have this excess of, of microbes that are going to take this L-carnitine and turn it into something that, that is a toxin, the TMAO.
compound. And in that, their liver suddenly exposed this high carcinogenic you know, toxin produced by the protein uh, metabolism through bacteria, then manifest the liver cancer. So through these, these understood pathways of urea back in the day in the 1960s with Colin Campbell's group to our new discoveries of protein catabolism within uh, the microbiome of the human gut, we're starting to find out that there are a few macronutrients that could cause more damage to the human body than excess protein. So what are we gonna do about this? How are we gonna get around this, this danger of protein excess? One of the, the keys for me is to discover the proteins that are not going to do, do the fermentation within the gut or produce the excess of, of the urea production on the backside in the cellular system of the body. These proteins are generally going to come from plants. But before we dive into the source of these proteins, we can take a look at the USDA's current recommendation for how much protein we actually need. Even by kind of these most liberal assumptions of the protein demands of the human body, where we continue to suspend the belief that proteins can be bad for us, 40 grams is kind of the typical recommendation. 40 grams of protein represents only about 10% of the human nutritional needs from a caloric standpoint. So all of the calories you eat in a day, only 10% should be coming from those dense proteins of the meat, the dairy, and the like. So now think about the, the, the assembly of food on your plate in a given day. The amount of calories in, in, in a typical chicken breast or steak far outstrips the caloric quality of the, of the small size salad or a little bit of starch potatoes that you have next to that or the like. So we have to reevaluate those plates and if you're going to continue to eat high density proteins, they're going to have to be in tiny quantities compared to the typical American diet. If you go into any other, any other culinary culture around the world, you see this. Meats are typically used as a flavoring for a dish rather than the main dish. You have little chunks of pork in the, in the pasta you know, dishes or noodles of, of Japan or whatever it is. You have you know, a little bit of uh, meat proteins that are, are cooked and stewed in, in the stews of Africa traditionally and the like. So they're used there to flavor the, the food rather than be a, a primary source of, of caloric intake. We got it backwards in the United States as recently as the 1940s and 50s, and we just need to back up now to that kind of pre-World War II mentality where the, where the chicken dinner is the Sunday meal. It's not the lunch, dinner, and then some bacon on with breakfast. That three-time-a-day dense protein you know, phenomenon that's helped, happened due to the wealth of the American consumer and the you know, massive mechanization of the modern agricultural system that's allowing for mega you know, corn farming to feed the mega feedlots with all the cattle and the rest, all of that wealth, all of that infrastructure, all that technologic innovation has taken us far, far from any traditional diet that we would have had in the United States or abroad. So we need to back up in time and start to eat from the rainbow again. We need to, to maximize the sources of, of nutrients, whether they be proteins, carbohydrates, or fats. We have to stop the monotony on the plate. Stepping back now to this kind of whole belief system around where are you going to get your protein if you're a vegetarian, I always find it useful to point out racehorses. Racehorses are one of the most extraordinary athletes on the planet, right? They, they might have 600, 700 pounds of lean muscle in their bodies. And those rippling muscles that are going to tear around that racetrack at the Kentucky Derby or some other humanitarian crisis event, uh, we, we get this sensation of maximum output. This has got to be the maximum example of an athlete in their elite performance. And it's notable that that horse has never eaten a piece of meat 
or cheese in its life. These horses can make 600 pounds of lean muscle at their peak performance eating grains and the grasses and the, the you know, bright carbohydrate mixes that they would get uh, through the forage that they are being, being fed. We do not make muscle from eating meat. We make muscle from glucose. We make all of the amino acids that would make all of the 400,000 proteins from glucose. And so it is ultimately important for us to start turning our attention back to the plant kingdom for nice balances in the way in which we deliver proteins to the body. The putrefaction that happens in the colon from excess protein doesn't happen when you mix it with the right ratios of carbohydrates. A good example of this is uh, kale. So your cruciferous vegetables, the kale, cauliflower, broccoli, and the like, are exemplary of this incredible balance between carbohydrates and protein. For every gram of carbohydrates you get in the kale, you're gonna get two-thirds of that in, in grams of protein. And so it, there's an enormous amount of protein in these veggies that we typically will think of as carbohydrates. You see somebody served a salad and your keto guy or your, you know, uh, your, your paleo guy or whatever they're gonna call themselves these days are go gonna take a look at that and be like, oh, that's, that's a carb load. When in fact, two thirds of, of that by, by weight is gonna be protein. And so, or two thirds for every gram of, of carbohydrate, you're gonna get the protein. And so there's this beautiful balance and interplay that's gonna prevent the necessary you know, putrefaction in the colon as the proteins from those plants are balanced out with the fiber and the carbohydrates that are delivered there. So you're always gonna have less inflammation, less need for this fermentation process in the colon if you've got this balance of fiber, carbohydrates, and the protein load there. In the same way, as you go through the body and, and are moving towards the fuel process, the body doesn't need to ultimately you know, produce fuel out of the protein when you're eating 10, 20, 30 grams of protein a day. It can keep that as amino acid reserves and not necessarily having to put that all the way down to glucose uh, metabolism. And so if the majority of your fuel is coming from fats and carbs, then you don't need to go through the whole urea process and the nitrogen you know, inflammation pathways in the rice that are gonna damage the vascular tree, the bone, the organ systems, kidney tubules, and the like. And so plants are really your ideal source. And so when I break that down for uh, a patient of mine, it's typically gonna be grains, nuts, seeds, legumes, the beans. Ultimately, mushrooms are really surprised on the list. Everybody else kind of, you know, all the rest of the list tends to be relatively familiar to you. But mushrooms are this super power-charged uh, source for a very wide variety of proteins. You know, far more amino acid, you know, diversity within a mushroom, but even beyond the amino acids as building blocks, the protein diversity that you're gonna get in those, uh, those mushrooms are really advanced compared to the vegetables or the meat. That's interesting because when you take complex proteins that you would find in a mushroom, you're gonna demand a shift in the microbiome of the gut to more diversity. You're gonna need more diversity of species of bacteria, fungi, and the like to deal with that large array of proteins that would come in a mushroom versus that chunk of chicken. And so mushrooms are a great supercharger for it. And then of course the vegetables themselves as mentioned. So the, the plate of protein is really everything that you could put there. Anything that would end up on an American plate is gonna be a source of protein. And we have to lose this belief, this fixed you know, belief that somehow the meat is gonna turn into muscle in your body. I'm very grateful to some of the recent documentaries that of course come out around these vegetarian diets and the power of a vegan diet, these plant-based diets. Uh, the Game Changers was an important one because 
Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, in a lot of ways, shaped our, our, our American diet uh, through his influence in the bringing bodybuilders into the American entertainment system. And we saw him as the, this example of kind of the ultimate male body. And so in, in growing up in the 1970s and 80s, Schwarzenegger and some of these other kind of dominant uh, entertainers with the, with the big muscle were, were forcing us as, as teens to eat more and more protein if we wanted to be on the football team or if we wanted to be you know, bulking up uh, before the race or whatever it is. And so that misperception now gets completely reversed and we see Arnold Schwarzenegger show up in Game Changers telling everybody that the most important thing that he's done for his life quality of life, longevity, and ultimately his, his, um, his, the continuation of his muscle career has been the transition to a vegan diet, a completely plant-based source of proteins. So I'm grateful that we're starting to see the entertainment industry or at least the documentary industry starting to catch up with the reality that we, we really screwed up our messaging on proteins. I want to take us back to the beauty of the body. I want to take us back to the understanding of this eloquent dance that happens uh, in the body as we start to imagine nutrition as a source of energy and creativity within the human body rather than the monotonous delivery of calcium equals bone, meat equals protein in the, in the muscle. Those old you know, belief systems were too simplistic. They kept us kind of in this nutritional box or belief system, this dogma that really limited our capacity. And so as we back up now to think about your daily experience with food, I would like to put us in a state of reverence. Let's back up to not just you know, 20, 30 years ago or before World War II, let's back up to really the origin of, of multicellular life on Earth. This dance that began four billion years ago with the first bacteria and then that their diversification through genetic sharing and the beginnings of the epigenetic diversification of life on Earth. And then the emergence of multicellular organisms that were, were precursored by the, the fungi and then into the protozoa and then ultimately into uh, the complex uh, system of parasites and then multicellular organisms like the worms and everything else that would ultimately become vertebrates and then ultimately this large leap that happened from reptiles to mammals much of the pressure for these big leaps in life have been stressors. When you stress biology, you create the potential for adaptation. We have brought our species and so many species around us to the brink of extinction. We are at this phenomenal tipping point where either we're going to change everything or we're going to disappear. But in that stress level, I want to kind of show you a silver lining. In the stress level that happens when we put this level of nutritional stress on animals and humans and the like, every cell in those bodies, every cell in the microbes that are being damaged by our chemical food chain and the like, each of those with genetic material start to misspell their genetic sequences intentionally, trying to find gain-of-function opportunities. And so what happens when you put a whole system of life under stress is it pushes for more adaptation and the opportunity for more biodiversity that could survive the stressors. And so in a bizarre way, we could shift our behavior as humans from our consumptive, destructive, protein overdose, you know, carb overloads, whatever we're doing wrong there, we could take that level of stress and turn it into a co-creative journey. 
if we align ourselves, not just nutritionally, but align ourselves with all of nature's templates for vitality, from fuel production to biodiversity of plant life around us, to soil diversity within the microbes and the fungal systems and the mycelium and the mycorrhizae and everything else that we are now capable of participating with as we go into regenerative agriculture, regenerative food systems, regenerative nutrition programs for school systems, prisons, hospitals. It could look so beautiful that every morsel of food we touch not only was good for us, but was good for the planet. We could be moving towards this opportunity where all of the biodiversity, all the genetic diversity that has been created through our stress could be the building blocks for new life on the other side. After that last great extinction, when the dinosaurs disappeared, it took some you know, 30 million years for life to rebuild itself. And Mother Earth did not redesign the dinosaurs. Instead, she created mammals. She created flowering plants, deciduous trees. The biodiversity that we know today has largely come out of the stress that was put on the planet through cataclysmic events on the planet as it developed. We are now the cataclysmic event on the planet. We are causing that extinction level stress on the planet. And we could finish that process to our demise and that of 90% of the species on the planet, or we could stop the destruction now and start to imagine where the biodiversity, where the genetic intelligence of gain of function that has been released into our environment through the viruses and the rest might be able to take life on Earth. Could we see human life in 100 and 200 years in a completely different structure? What proteins will we emphasize when we stop the destruction, when we stop the overconsumption? What bodies will we build? What lifespans will we live when we align with nature? If we choose to have reverence for the design of nature and then align ourselves with that rather than with every discovery we make trying to extract that and turn it into a piece of owned intellectual property that we then exploit for profit, if we change that behavior, start in that reverence to move towards a journey of understanding and supporting nature and her desire for adaptability, for stress reduction, for biodiversification, we could become different. I have become different over the last decade through changing my lifestyle radically. I have certainly changed my diet, but I've changed my exercise behavior. But further and deeper than that, I've changed my spiritual worldview of myself. I have started to see myself as not just the biologic result of you know, epigenetics, I am the spiritual, cognizant, conscious result of nature within me. As I integrate my life more and more deeply into nature, I become more and more intelligent in my deciphering of the beauty of nature. How can we start to, in our awe of the beauty within, start to, to align ourselves with that, to become co-creators rather than consumers. I want you to start to shake it up. I want you to start to be intuitive about what your body wants to build today. As you connect to nature, imagine the amount of electrical energy you could produce from the food that is not consumptive, but is co-creative. Thank you for listening to this excerpt of Vital Health with Dr. Zach Bush. If there's one takeaway I would point out from this program, it's this. 
Your cells cannot take protein and directly turn it into energy. Protein has to be broken down into its component amino acids for the body to use them. And this breakdown process has a variety of side effects. Adding more plants into your diet can be a more effective and efficient way to get those essential amino acids without the negative impacts of dense, monotonous proteins like meat. And if this fact is surprising to you, I highly recommend checking out the nine other segments in Vital Health, Dr. Zach's full course on Commune. You can go to onecommune.com trial to sign up for 14 days of free access. Plus, if you like receiving lessons like this on the podcast, click subscribe and leave us a review. I read everyone, and so does my mom. <laughs> Rating and liking the show helps bring more attention to information like this that the world really needs right now for the health of our friends, family, communities, and the planet. It just takes a minute to subscribe and give us a five-star rating and share what you liked most about the podcast. Well, that's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you. Thank you.